My name is Abby and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences of being consensually non-monogamous for almost a decade. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious or anything in between, we invite you to join us for this conversation. Let's begin. Jessica Fern is the author of Polysecure, the Polysecure Workbook, and her recent book, Polywise. She is a psychotherapist, public speaker, and trauma and relationship expert. In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multi-partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas, helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. David Cooley is the co-author of Polywise. David is a professional restorative justice facilitator, diversity and privilege awareness trainer, and bilingual cultural broker. He works with non-monogamous and LGBTQ clients, incorporating modalities including trauma-informed care, attachment theory, somatic practices, narrative theory, and mindfulness-based techniques. Esther Perel had this to say about Polywise. Jessica Fern has crafted the map to guide readers and lovers venturing into the uncharted. With great care and necessary nuance, Polywise is a must-read for anyone navigating open relationships. In today's episode, Jessica and David share about their own experiences with opening up their relationship, their thoughts on attachment and codependency, psychedelics and polyamory, and of course, their new book, Polywise. Welcome, David and Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Evolving Love podcast. We're so excited to speak with you both. Thank you for having us. So you have written these incredible books, Polysecure and Polywise. Would you mind sharing with our listeners a little bit about both of your journeys? How did you come from living in a, in a monogamous world into being such amazing thought leaders and such helpful guides to help people navigating open relationships? I mean, I grew up in New York City, New York in the United States, and by and large, it was a very monogamous culture that I was being raised in, but I didn't start out monogamous. There was a lot of non-monogamy happening in my adolescence, but we didn't really have a name for it. It was just something that was happening. So, you know, and I grew up in a very non-traditional household as well, where there were several divorces and and positive relationships, even with, you know, new step parents and difficult relationships with new step parents and my mom being friends with her, you know, ex's new girlfriend. There was some of that that, again, there was no language for it then, but they were modeling a sense of um, care for just human relationships, you know. So I think a lot of that paved the way that, um, you know, fast forward, Dave and I are together. We were in a monogamous marriage. And even in our monogamous sexually exclusive marriage, you know, it was something that we already had been dialoguing about. And we opened up. And so it was that process, you know, of of us opening up um, from monogamy to polyamory that um, was a steep learning curve. <laughs> it was quite a boot camp in love and and life, all of it. Incredible. So, so David, do you mind us talking through a little bit about this boot camp that Jessica speaks of? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, it's you know, for us, it was really kind of the classic or cliche rookie mistake, you know, just the assumption that it was going to be one way and then finding pretty quickly that it was very, very different. You know, whereas Jessica had a lot of kind of precedence in her personal history for a more fluid way of understanding relationships. Yeah, I came from a household where, I mean, my parents are still married. They just celebrated their 55th anniversary. So for me, monogamy's kind of been the undertone but I think for me, there's been sort of a mistrust of a lot of the institutions of, at least in the United States, kind of the the classic ideas of what you're supposed to be, the social and relational escalator. I've had a lot of mistrust. And so for me, philosophically, I started experimenting with psychedelics at a very young age, you know, kind of found my way into the counterculture. And I really had a very... I was convinced that I was never going to get married. 
so to me, actually, to step into marriage was sort of a, a radical move in, in some ways. You were being counterculture to yourself. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways, in, in, in sort of in the subcultures that I was really steeped in, that was sort of a, uh, an interesting move to make. And so when we first got married, we had a lot of conversations about how do we do marriage differently? You know, and, and one of the things that we had, I think, pretty pretty well integrated into our way of being was kind of a very open relationship to emotional and intellectual intimacy. Um, a lot of my close friends throughout my whole life have been females and uh, Jessica's had a lot of close male friends. And so that was something that never felt challenging or threatening. And so philosophically, once Jessica started bringing home the ideas that she was getting from some of her clients about non-monogamy and we started to look at the the material that was available at the time, it just felt like a good fit. And then I had never really been challenged with jealousy. I'd never had that put to the test because of this kind of concept of just, you know, that, that fluidity we had with emotional and intellectual um, intimacy already with friends and, and people that were in our circle. So I thought, yeah, what what's the physical piece? What what will that be? And that was the real eye opener. Um, was that kind of a crash course in attachment that was provoked when Jessica started having physical intimacy with with other men? That was really uh, surprising. I was shocked, really, at how intense that was for me. And I get the sense from reading the book that it felt like a really uh, kind of deep dive straight into polyamory. Was there discussions between the two of you that thought maybe we'll kind of open up, you know, in a, in a really gentle way that that might be, you know, shared experiences or that type <laughs> of thing, or did or did you really think, nah, let's 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 just go all the way? We we said let's just go all the way. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've ever. I don't think we've ever gently done anything. Any of our transitions in life have never been gradual step towards yeah. one by one. I mean, we the the concept of community has always been really important to us, and I think that was another thing that really felt alluring and attractive was that idea of kind of concentric circles of communal support. And really liking some of the ideas around kitchen table poly, like having more intimacy felt like a boon to our familial culture. We, you know, we had a child. We were really very acutely aware of how intense it was to be a nuclear family, not loving that. You know, we were looking at books like The Continuum Theory, um, which was really exciting, looking at kind of Aboriginal indigenous ways of, of kind of using the community to bolster raising children. So there were so many ideas that felt really like, okay, these are anecdotal, antidotal to sort of the suffering that we're feeling as an isolated nuclear system. So it was something I think we really embraced theoretically. And I think even our styles, like we weren't looking to have sexual experiences where we would have threesomes or moresomes. Um, you know, we both, I think we're more just drawn to polyamory itself of feeling like, oh, we can do this love with others thing. And that's what we're more interested in, you know, than um, other forms of non-monogamy at that time, at least. So you're both already, you know, when you came to non-monogamy and you're learning about it, it sounds like you're already in that place where you're very conscious people. You're very conscious in the way that you live. You're conscious in, you know, living a life that works for the two of you, even if it's a little bit off the track to what is the norm. You know, David, you mentioned taking psychedelics and, you know, finding your own path. Do you think that there is, you know, with your experience with all of the work that you do and, and the, you know, the people that you meet and, you know, patients and people who are in therapy with you, do you think that there is a certain type of person who is more drawn to non-monogamy or do you sort of see that there is a range of people across the board? That's a great question. It is a great question. I mean, I kind of see both, right? Like I do see people from everywhere and all different, you know, um, socioeconomic, all, all the factors, you know, that you can check off the boxes, um, coming from different places. Um, and then yet I also, you do see these clusters of certain places like within the U S or around the globe that tend to have people who are more drawn to it for certain reasons. I am fascinated, Jessica. So you've obviously had, had a long history of working with couples and, uh, did you find that that really informed your entry into opening up your relationship with David? Did you think yeah. it was kind of like almost like a, a roadmap of some of the things maybe not to do and some of the things that the <laughs> 
that could be really great ways to open up a relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it definitely did inform. And as much as we joke that it was difficult and it was, I think there was a lot of mistakes we actually did not make. There's a lot of harm that I've seen other people do that we did not um, cause each other. So, yeah, I do think seeing what people were doing, what they were coming to me with, you know, even things that they were requesting. Sometimes there would be beautiful moments that clients inspire me to come home and say, "Ooh, this is something really lovely to try <laughs> that I didn't think of on my own. Yeah. So I do I do think we avoided certain mistakes. Um, that just doesn't get as much airtime. And do you feel when when people are going to open up their relationship and they're looking for a therapist or a support person, how do you think is the best way for people to find somebody who is actually quite experienced in non-monogamy as a therapist? Because I know that there can be a lot of polyamory and non-monogamy friendly therapists out there, but to sort of find someone who really understands the the nuances and and how sort of tricky and complicated non-monogamy can be do you think that it is quite important for people to find a therapist who is themselves non-monogamous yeah i definitely do i i wouldn't yeah i think it's really a delicate subject but i i think it's really important that if you're going to be working with someone you've worked with someone who's gone through their own significant attachment ruptures um that's something that you can't intellectually sort of work someone through unless you've really been through the intensity of it. Um, I wouldn't want that for my, after going through it myself, I think to me, that's sort of the signifier of someone that I would trust in terms of knowing how to hold space for me. Um, because it can be so intense. It can be so just outside of the realm of what some people have ever experienced for themselves in terms of just extreme reactivity to, to conflict. It's such an important thing. And we must uh, turn our attention, of course, to this exciting new book that has landed uh, about two weeks ago in our letterbox, which we were very excited about. I had it pre-ordered for, I don't know how many months you could possibly have it pre-ordered for, but it was the (laughs) maximum amount of months. Um, And of course, now we have Polywise, which is is co-authored by both of you. I'd love to know a little bit about uh, what was the impetus behind actually writing this book and also doing it in a collaborative sense. Of course, you had this incredible Polysecure, which is now, I guess the the, the cornerstone of of, uh, of text, as far as all of our friends are concerned, definitely in our community, kind of it's the it's the Bible that we all preach from. But what made you want to uh, move and kind of extend the conversation with with Polywise, Jessica? Polywise actually came first in my own process, um, and and I think I do say this in Polywise that initially it was a body of work that was looking at several of the things, several of the root causes of what was making polyamory, non-monogamy difficult for people. And attachment was just one of the things on the list. Um, but my publisher, when I first met Eve years ago, was like, can we make a whole book on attachment? And I was like, yes. And then so, but actually the first thing I pitched would have been Polywise, which would have just had one chapter on attachment instead of an entire book. And so it's better that it happened this way because I think Polysecure became what it became, right? And then this is sort of the follow-up and actually the whole work itself. And just a little bit on the attachment. Do you feel like people can, you know, if we are one type of a, you know, one type, we have one type of attachment, like I am a... um anxious, preoccupied. So that's really exciting uh, for me and uh, Liam sometimes. It's a, it's a bit of a journey. Liam, I would say, is definitely a secure attachment. Um, do you feel like people can really um, work and change their attachment style and that maybe non-monogamy can help us, um, you know, maybe heal in ways, you know, make us so aware of our attachment styles and heal in ways that otherwise we might not have, you know, done the work. We might not have investigated because in, not, in monogamy, I felt quite... It's, uh, well, sometimes I would feel insecure, but I think, you know, polyamory and non-monogamy really just pulls out those anxious wounds inside of us. Absolutely. I, I think the change can be profound. And I think for me, I would start in my own experience it would be sort of the reverse was I was made aware of my own attachment style because we opened up. And that was my crash course in the reality of attachment systems and the implications of that. And so since then, working backwards after understanding that, going through the rupture, I've been able to really see as I've gone through these different iterations of relationships, 
sort of, okay, what's possible? What's the work that I need to do to really start to generate a secure attachment with myself so that as I'm interfacing with other people at this more complex level of multiple relationships, I'll be able to show up in a way that feels different, like really feels different in my nervous system, more grounded, more settled. And as I've done that, it's changed sort of what I'm looking for in partners. My criteria has changed. And so it's been interesting to feel how people who have done this kind of work and educated themselves and sensitized themselves to this, these possibilities have been in a very non-monogamous context. And so I feel like it's sort of this mycelium web of just people who are really interested in relationships. And that's something that I've found exists more so outside of a monogamous context because people don't have to. And so I think there's an impetus in the non-monogamous communities to really focus on relationships in a way that's unique and sort of invites all of us who are really invested in that to, to kind of learn. When we first came to PolySecure, it was actually in a similar way, David, it was kind of a, a retrospective looking back on, on some of the things that we were going through and trying to analyze, you know, what is actually going on here? You know, why is my attachment feeling, you know, insecure or, what, you know, what, what are the things? And the, the amazing thing about PolySecure is that we were able to go, oh, maybe there's, there's reasons for this. We were able to kind of almost self-diagnose, of course, with your help, Jessica, able to self-diagnose ourselves and think, you know, is there a way through this? And even sometimes just acknowledging, you know, what's going on. That is such a powerful thing in and of itself. Do you find that people often uh, come to PolySecure and I guess PolyWise people are starting to read it and and, and check it out and and I'm sure you're getting lots of reviews and and feedback. Are people saying to you, Jessica, I just never thought of something this way? You know, are there any things that are jumping out from the book that people are going, oh my goodness, this is revelatory? Yeah. I mean, with PolySecure, secure absolutely you know it's years later and i'm still getting people saying like you gave language to exactly what was going on that i didn't have language for and so i do think sometimes even just the conceptual framework can have a healing impact on us just to make sense of our own lived experience is so powerful um but already yeah i mean you know we're the poly wise feedback is just starting to come in to trickle in because people haven't, you know, finished reading it or they didn't even get the book yet. Um, And a lot about paradigms are things they haven't thought of before or in Dave's chapter on, you know, restorative paradigms versus punitive paradigms. It's like, it's blowing their mind. It's great. Would you be able to share about this concept of vessels within relationships to help you transition, you know, maybe from one, from something that's happening in the relationship and then being in a vessel and moving you through that? Would you be able to share share about that, David? I mean, I think it's like if we're using the concept of attachment as sort of a frame of reference, you know, it's it's helpful to think about what are the things that we need to feel safe and secure in a relationship. Right. And that's what Jessica did so well is sort of give us a really nice metric, a really precise and well-grounded metric for figuring out for ourselves what's going to make us feel secure and attached in a particular relationship. What are the needs or wants that we need to have in a particular configuration? And so knowing that and being in touch with that often can allow us to sort of be very explicit about what are our limits? What can I tolerate? And those limits can really be connected to life things. Like maybe it's not necessarily something that you feel like you have a lot of control over the birth of a child or the death of a loved one or just a big kind of change in career. You know, there's a lot of different reasons that make life tumultuous and you don't feel like you've got the bandwidth to do more complex relating. Knowing that about yourself can sort of give you permission to then create a structure that's potentially limited. Maybe you're introducing hierarchy into a relationship where previously there wasn't, right? And so you're creating parameters around a relationship that's allowing you to feel secure and safe. But it's really grounded in that sort of awareness of what you need for yourself right now, right? Or it could just be there could be philosophical reasons for it. It doesn't have to be life circumstances necessarily. But it's really about how do we give permission to people to set limits. And again, they could be temporary. It's not like this is once and for all. It's another way to think about paradigmatically how do you help yourself through transitions so that it's not just an all or nothing approach, which can often leave people feeling overwhelmed and daunted or this is impossible. 
it's just sort of a way to to kind of titrate the experience and make people feel like they have more agency over the style and approach that they have. So when people come to talk to you, for example, Jessica, and they say, you know, we're thinking about opening up our relationship, is that kind of sense of gradual exposure and the sense of vessels, is that something that you really advocate for? Or is it dependent more on the, the relationship that is present in front of you? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how what they're ready for and what they're saying they're wanting. Um, but rarely do people come for support and they're exactly in the same place, <laughs> wanting the same style of non-monogamy. Usually that's why they're coming is because there's different styles that they're wanting or different ways of doing it. And that's where these vessels can be really helpful that we say, okay, we have to bridge this gap. Because if we move too quickly in one of your styles versus the other, one of you is going to bend too far and break, right? And in non-monogamy, especially in the beginning, you're going to have to bend and step out of your comfort zone, but we don't want you to break and be in these trauma responses that sometimes happens for people. So the vessel is this way to try out new things and let your nervous system acclimate along the way so that you can keep expanding. So there's this um, paradox of going slow actually moves you way faster through this. And in your book, you write about justice jealousy. Could you please talk a little bit about that? That was a new thing for me to read when I was learning well, about this. We connected this. with it deeply. Oh, we did. We did. Would you be able to <laughs> yeah. share a little bit about justice jealousy? Absolutely. Yeah, that came straight out of our relationship, not out of client experience. <laughs> Where, um, you know, in Dave and I's marriage, when we were monogamous, there were several things that I was asking for around him initiating certain romantic experiences. And I'd ask for it and he'd say yes and maybe try a little, but it just was never, it never really happened in the way that I wanted. And then eventually I just accepted like, you know what? I love him. He has so many things that he does offer. And like, it's just not who he is, right? It's fundamentally not who he is. <laughs> um, and then we open up and he starts doing those things for other people, things that I'd been asking for for so long, right? <laughs> exactly. We have faces right now, screaming faces. And it was devastating, right? And to say I was just being jealous didn't capture what this experience was, right? It was like, this isn't just me being possessive and jealous. I was actually happy that he was doing those e things even with four other people. It was the deep pain of feeling a rejection and feeling relational neglect of like, wow, all these years I've been asking for this, you haven't been able to do it. Now someone new comes along. And not even that you're doing it, like suddenly you have capacities that didn't even exist, right? So it's this it's this real fired up type of it feels like an injustice has happened. Hence the name justice jealousy. And did you find that from that experience and then talking with David about it, um, did that get the conversations happening and then all of a sudden, David, would were you having this awareness? Like I didn't realize and now I do I do want to do this for you. So did it sort of up your relationship with each other in a way? You sort of got to access, you know, new parts of giving and loving with each other as well. Well, it's it's important to say that none of this actually happened. All of those stories are fabricated for the sense of the, <laughs> like the, the audience. Um, we just need more filler for the book. No, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's, it is, it's, it's, um, looking back on it, there were a lot of things that felt painful and, and challenging to, to come to terms with, but it felt really important to be open and honest about these things in particular, just to help encourage other partners to really be explicit, to name these things, to try to ease some of the pain of it. Um, there was so much that in my own experience, I wasn't aware of, like I said, when before we opened, I didn't have any real concept of attachment or attachment theory and what that meant. And so there was so much learning that happened as we were going through our various ruptures. And so part of what was happening was seeing other men give Jessica this kind of attention that she had been asking from me was a real eye opener, was really accelerating a lot of this anxious attachment stuff that I was coming up for me. It was like, holy shit, I'm going to lose this relationship if I don't start doing things differently. Right. And so it was impelled, unfortunately, instead of, you know, for the, the desire to do something for my partner that she'd been asking for, it was the fear of loss, which is not the best uh, motivator. And, and for us, in our case, it was too little, too late. 
But it started to change the way that I even conceived of myself and what was possible and then what would be needed for relationships moving forward. It really jump-started my capacity, my sense of my own sense of capacity for relating to other people. It's like, oh, this isn't gonna fly. The way I've been isn't going to work in these new relationships. This is this whole part of myself that I just didn't think I had access to. I mean, I just didn't even think in those terms. So I remember when she would ask for these things, I would walk away feeling really hurt and thinking she's asking me to be a different person. I don't know how to do these things. And then you go through a big trauma, you go through a big rupture and you're like, oh, I can. What does that mean about me? And so it really cast a lot of doubt on kind of who I've been and why and now who can I become? And it was, I, I acknowledge like, yeah, it was so painful for then for her to watch that new self come online in the context of another relationship. And it's, it's really, it's a really hard phenomenon for relationships and sometimes they don't survive it. And, and in the sense of our emotional relationship or romantic sexual relationship, it didn't survive that, that transition. And I think that was part of it. Were you able to pinpoint the the moments of the injustice? Was it like a, a recurring theme? Was it like every time you, you know, you never open the door for me and, and suddenly you open the door for all these ladies, you know, it, were there particular things or was it kind of very dependent on the actual uh, relationship? It was, there were definitely particular moments. Yeah. Yeah. And we highlight one of them in the book, you know, it's just, it's really the like logistical planning. You know, like mm. me taking the because she was asking for me to take the initiative on the romantic side, like initiate dates, plan dates, put things together. So she wasn't having to do the kind of the left hemisphere stuff, brain stuff, you know, for mm. making our romance happen. And I was taking in monogamy, I was taking a very passive and I didn't even see it that way. I didn't hold it that way. I wasn't I didn't have that perspective, but I was in a very passive relationship to the um, kind of the romantic emotional side of our relationship. And so that started, that was one of the things that was really shocking to see other people tuning in, in that new RE, you know, that, excuse me, the NRE phase, the new relationship energy phase for her other relationships. It was like, whoa, that's exactly what they were doing. Part of that's the phase they were in, but it was part of also the way that she was vetting people where she was looking for someone that was going to give her what she wasn't getting with me. So it was kind of this, mm. this perfect like alarm bell to go off and make me really focused on what was missing. It did spark a conversation once once we read that particular part of the book. I said to Abby, "Oh, you know, let's let's have a chat about this and let's talk about hypotheticals. You know, what would be something that would really tick you off if I was to do this with a partner?" What came to mind was actually cooking. You know, something quite light. You know, um, if you, I feel like sometimes when you're making meals, you tend you make amazing food, but you tend to make what you love to eat, mm. and you know, and we enjoy it and our son and it's all lovely but I think if if something were to happen where you were like I'm gonna make this other partner their favorite meal because oh, yeah. often you know it's not usually my favorite meal and and just even thinking about that I just felt this like yep just sort of this rage you know the injustice of this like they would get their favorite meal what what about me <laughs> Yeah, the hypothetical suddenly became very real all of a sudden. That's a great one. <laughs> it does raise the, the topic of that sense of, uh, f for us as well, we, we started talking about codependency. And of course, you talk a, a lot about that in your book. And I think the cooking is is an example that you use. I think, I think within the book, David, you, you love cooking or you are doing a lot of the, the cooking. Is that right? He was the cook. Yeah, I was the house cook. C can you talk us through a little bit about some of the things, Jessica, that, that appear within Polywise, talking about that sense of uh, codependency, and maybe it might be really helpful to maybe define uh, what you uh, perceive as, as codependent uh, behavior within relationships? Yeah, and we go more into the book of really thoroughly defining it, but oh, you know, the overarching sense of not being a full self in your relationship, right? The ways that we lose ourselves, we enmesh our identity, our sense of who we are, we're deferring externally more than internally, right? These would all be, and then in the codependent dynamics, it would be usually we have one partner who's over-functioning, one partner's under-functioning. Or I can only feel this when you feel that, and there's sort of this seesaw experience happening in that dynamic. Yeah, or we can only feel the same things at the same time and have the same views or opinions or needs at the same time. Yeah, so that's an overarching thing. And then what you see is is sort of 
two different things. One is that it's very hard to be non-monogamous and codependent in one of your relationships. It really impacts all of the relationships when you have two partners that are in an, in a master codependent dynamic together. It doesn't create space. So a lot of people who were codependent, right, they start dating other people and they start, the light gets shined on that or the mirror gets held up of like, whoa, you really don't have a mind of your own, do you? Or can you even make your own decisions? Or is there even a space for me here to have a relationship with you? Because you're kind of a partial person with your other partner, Right. So wanting to bring all that to light and but also how much of the mono romantic ideal really encourages this losing ourselves for the relationship, being half of a whole where we have a better half. Right. So a lot of that idealism around that happens in monogamy and falling in love is encouraging a certain codependency. You write about the companion marriage. And that was really interesting because I feel like a lot of people might, they, they come to a point in their relationship and sort of the conversation can come up about different, different needs and wanting to open up because maybe something isn't there in their in their marriage. Um, would you like to share a little bit more about the companion marriage and how that sort of comes to a head with non-monogamy and, and can sometimes, you know, it can it can work in a non-monogamous um, structure and then sometimes, you know, it, it might not always work. It can really be amazing. It can be kind of, in some situations, it can be a real solution for people getting needs met that were probably never going to get met or stop getting met in the context of a long-term relationship. In this case, we're talking about marriage, obviously. Um, and so there's a way in which people have a freedom to go get very specific needs met outside of the context of the marriage. And it ends up really balancing a tension that was previously sort of um, unsustainable so in that sense, it can be a real boon for relationships that kind of hit a stagnant point around these specific need points and then, you know, open up just a vista of opportunities that really allows the marriage to be appreciated for what it is and for what it is giving the situation. I've got several clients that are really, once they kind of got grounded in that concept of like, this is what we're doing and the expectations are now sort of retrofitted to to meet this container there's just like so much peace and harmony in, in their family structure, right, in the house. And it's just it's so beautiful that that can happen, um, especially for the kids. It's just like the, 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 the feeling of the house changes because everyone's feeling like, yeah, this works now. Awesome. Where it's hard is when one person wants one thing and the other person in the marriage wants something else. And it feels like the opening up is really going to create that kind of sense that one person's going to lose out. Or, you know, attachment ruptures start to really exhibit themselves, right? And there's not that kind of onboardness or being on the same page about that decision. And so, and that's when people really start coming to us is when it feels like there's the, that incongruence in what people are wanting in that structure is, is just so far off. Would your advice be if the, if there was that sense of, of a real not matching each other's needs in terms of what they were looking for in, in opening up, would your advice be not to open up until you've actually had those very intense conversations and really identified why you were opening up and what needs weren't being met? Or would you say that you should open up really gently? What would be your advice in that particular situation? It really depends on the relationship. Like it, there's just so, they're all so different. I, I think in general, I would err on the side of, Wait until you've gotten a certain level of clarity if you're able to identify what the needs are that you're really negotiating. Um, if that's not possible for whatever reason and there's still the willingness to go forward, then, yeah, going slow and trying it in sort of a, a measured way would be the next best thing. But I can say that and I've had you know, instances in my, with private clients where it's been totally opposite, like people open and it was the solution. It was the salvation and it didn't seem like it was going to be that way. 
Um, so it just, I, I'm really hesitant to say one size fits all kind of recommendations. Do you find that people, uh, some people come to you, uh, both and say, you know, I, I feel inherently non-monogamous. I feel like this is, this is who I am. This is an orientation. It's not necessarily a lifestyle choice because one thing that really stuck out to me in, in poly wise was this beautiful diagram, uh, where you have non-monogamy on one side and then monogamy on the other. And then the in-between was lifestyle choice saying, that the kind of extreme ends of the spectrum, those are the people that really identify with that sense of whether it's non-monogamy or whether it's monogamy being um, something that's inherent to them as a, as a person. Where do you guys fall on that spectrum? What do you guys think about that? Yeah, well, to answer your question, yes, I do see a lot of people more and more who are really saying that their non-monogamy, their polyamory um, is fundamentally how they're oriented. It doesn't feel like a choice to them that they're making. It feels like who they fundamentally are. And then there are people who say, it is a choice I'm making and I can, it can come and go. It can ebb and flow. Um, we just had a conversation though with um, people who said, you know, she felt like her ambiamorous, so her ability to actually come and go and be back and forth was an orientation as well. So, you know, it, this is going to keep evolving. <laughs> we already need the second edition of Polywise. Um, to include that. Um, but I definitely resonate. I mean, so before having this ambiamorous conversation, I do feel like my orientation is to polyamory. Um, and yet sometimes I have exclusivity with partners. That doesn't always mean because of life circumstances that I have multiple partners. Um, but my essence in and of itself feels like it is polyamorous. And you, David? It's really changed. It's changed a lot. I think initially it was a very, before really diving into it and experiencing it, it was like a philosophical, oh yes, this makes the most sense to me. Then we got into it and it really was having my attachment system put to the test. It was like, oh, uh, this is a lifestyle. This is a choice and I'm choosing not to do this. Um, and then realizing that doesn't work either. That's not honest and real either. And so as I was sort of getting over the the rupture and the divorce and kind of all the tumult from that, recognizing as the dust settled, I don't fully identify with polyamory or monogamy. It's really relationship-based, but I need there to be a certain flexibility. And so actually that ambiamorous concept was really helpful for me because I really recognize that it's it's very relationally specific for me. Um, and I would need, but I would, with the caveat being that I would need to be with someone who has a similar flexibility and fluidity, knowing that our relationship is going to evolve and that we both were going to need space and freedom to do certain kinds of exploration. Like for me, kink has become a really important thing, which I had no idea was even, that was never on my radar before. And now that it's in my world, it's like, wow, I'm going to have to be with somebody who's open to this and, and, and wanting this and allowing this to, to flourish in some way, even though I'm happy to negotiate parameters that meet our attachment needs. So interesting bringing the conversation of kink as well, kink and non-monogamy, um, you know, huge crossover in communities. And I feel like that's actually something that can trigger certain um, jealousies or insecurity insecurities with me because Liam and I have our own kink dynamics and, you know, sometimes it's not always, it's not necessarily a, a sexual dynamic, but it's it's something for us, you know, and to have somebody who might come in and, and want to be in that space or, or sort of replicate a dynamic that I might have with Liam would feel incredibly activating for me. It's like, I don't know if that could be something that I would be um, open to um, being flexible on. I'm not sure. What do you think, Liam? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, it could be an exciting uh, experience. I, I think the the great thing is that we have, uh, I guess, we communicate. We almost over communicate in a sense, mm -hmm. um, because we're constantly talking, and we we always talk about these hypotheticals. Hopefully, before they come along. <laughs> um, and one one question, jumping back to the, the the kind of issue of codependency that it make it makes me think about, is we often have this kind of jovial argument between ourselves. You know, is there there, is there an element of codependency that might actually be healthy in a way? That's a great question. I don't know if I'd actually call it codependency, though. It's more interdependency, right? Where you are saying, you're better at this than me, so you should be the one that does it. It makes more sense, right? Or I don't have the bandwidth for this thing, so can you please do it? 
So I do think there's like strengths and that we each have in relationship that we should definitely leverage. Yeah. But ideally it's more of this choice to be more interdependent than actually Mm -hmm. the loss of self, right? That I don't know my feelings. I don't know my needs. I can't articulate them. That's a different place. I want to jump in and ask a question. I'm curious because that sounded like it was sort of connected to something. And I'm, I'm curious to hear <laughs> if, if there's a, a specific dynamic that you're wondering, oh, is this codependent? Is this should, codependent? should we be looking at this differently? <laughs> or was that spawned from kind of a, a dynamic in your relationship or relationships that you have with other people? Yeah, I, th- I think that Liam and I, we do depend on each other a lot for, you know, different things, but we actually really enjoy that. And it can, sometimes we can feel a little bit like, oh, is this okay? Because, you know, we are reading a lot of, you know, polyamory, um, you know, we're in these polyamorous conversations yeah. and there's a lot of, you know, you know, autonomous and don't depend on people and, you know, love thyself first. And I think that's really important and we, and we do, but we actually do enjoy being in touch a lot, doing different things. There are certain things around the house. Like we do sort of sometimes fall into certain, you know, even gender stereotypes with certain things, but it just works for us. And we actually enjoy that. I think cooking is a great example. And that's why I really connected with it in, in your book, because I, because I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that Abby probably does, well, definitely does the, the majority of the cooking which I love which which Abby loves but I feel a, a, a tremendous amount of guilt sometimes about mm. you know I think you know I should be I should be stepping up and cooking more and, and you're a very progressive feminist husband and I think you just can't reconcile the fact that you yes. don't cook more but for us it's a real issue for me <laughs> <laughs> And that's why it sort of came up, you know, a little bit with this, you know, the jealousy justice, you know, it's like if you were to all of a sudden start cooking some big extravagant meals for other women, you know, that would just be a real shock. I think there's definitely elements of that. And also the fact that because we, we, you know, Abby has this evolving love project and we both work on it together, me behind the scenes often, there is that sense of a work codependence as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, this, this, when you guys were, were embarking on this book, what was your involvement with each other? Because it's one thing having, you know, being life partners with someone and having this romantic relationship, but then suddenly to collaborate on a, on this, this new text, this new book, what was the process of that like for, for you both? Overall, it was great. You know, we were writing the book, living in the same house together, raising our son. Um, and so it's, it's a strength of ours. You know, we love talking about ideas and concepts and, um, we can, yeah, just go and go and go with it. So I think we had a lot of fun. That doesn't mean it was always easy writing, you know, mm. but, and we have a sense too of usually I'm writing ahead and then Dave's coming behind, you know, that I'm filling it, you know, putting ideas onto paper and then he's refining as we go. Um, so we had a good system in place too, which I think was, was really great. And then we both have words that drive the other one nuts that are we each use too often, you know, so there's funny things in it too. What was one of those words, David? So I used, I don't know why, I'm not even sure where this comes from in my own psyche, but uh, I love to say impossible. I love to speak in superlatives and I'm sure there's other people out there that do that. But for some reason, I just unconsciously fall into, and unconsciously, she hates it when I use the word unconsciously. Unconsciously, unconsciously, she hates that. And I get it. I get why. But when I say impossible, or it's next to impossible, or impossibly, or interesting, nearly impossibly. Like, oh, it, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so I'll yeah. say I. I think we had to edit out a bunch of interestinglys, um, just because there were so many. Uh, so those are specific uh, repetitions in mine, you know. And then she's got her own brand of sort of. She has a funny relationship to, um, like idioms, you know, like like. You know, what was like, I can't even think of one out the top of my head, you know, one flew up the cuckoo's nest or what, you know, whatever it's like these, these turns of phrases that everyone knows in English and she'll like mix them. Killing two birds with one stone. Yeah. I like smash Yeah, And she'll like combine them. And it's like, I thought English was your first language. Like what is, why is that happening? And it's, it's usually hysterical. It's pretty amazing. Like the, some of the combinations of things that she said, but it's, it's something that shows up a lot. I'm like, what were you trying to say with this? Right. It's not polishable, even though it's entertaining between <laughs> us. <laughs> if you're hanging out with me, it's funny, but I can't put it on the written page, right? Yeah. But no, it was a lot of fun. And I think I think our the places where we're strong are different. And so we complement each other really well. And 
usually has a pretty good sense of humor about it. And I trust her. You know, I just trust her aesthetic. I trust the way she thinks. Um, I mean, she's the author of Polysecure, for God's sake. So what are you, what are you going to do? Speaking of being the author of Polysecure and now, you know, you're both on have written Polywise together. Now, I don't know exactly what's happening within your personal relationships and your other relationships, but do new partners who are coming in to potentially date you feel incredibly intimidated? Like, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> You're both so brilliant. Not in my case. I mean, that's definitely not been an issue in my case. Maybe Jessica. Well, your case is so interesting. His primary partner right now got was like pre-ready for him because of reading polysecure like that's crazy <laughs> mm. right where she did all this work through polysecure on her attachment and then was ready and they're in this incredible impossibly conscious <laughs> relationship it's, it's interesting you say that it is yeah yeah so that is you know so that's interesting um it is. It's been hard for me. I think I found the one person that is in my life right now that didn't know of my book before. And so it felt like we could have an authentic relationship. So it'll be interesting if I'm dating after this, <laughs> what that will be like. How, how long yeah. How long did it take you to, to drop into a, if you're going on a date, is it the kind of thing that you go, just so you know, don't Google me before we catch up? <laughs> I did. We met first and I, I like wouldn't give up my last name, you know, and Jessica's an easy one. So it's just, I'm Jessica, right? Wouldn't in my last name and then we met and it was like a mutual yes we want to go on dates and I was like okay I can give you my last name now <laughs> you can google but he, me. had he had he honestly heard of the book he hadn't he hadn't even no, heard of the book. he didn't that's what I'm saying that was what was incredible yeah yeah, yeah. whereas on the online dating uh, I was on an app and people were recognizing me and I was like oh I need to get off and and then it was good that I didn't. <laughs> this is fascinating because it's like if he hadn't read the book and it's like you're so, you know, you're so in the non-monogamous space and, you know, what's happening in all of the literature, it's also a little bit like for me, you know, if I'm to date someone, it's sort of a bit of a, well, have you read Polysecure? You know, right. like are you sort of across this? You know, that's kind of a, a, that's a bit of, that's a prerequisite. But I mean, when it's your own book and you're trying to fly under the radar. Right, totally. But I'll reread. I'll go through the hearts with anyone who wants to do it with me. <laughs> I still have a lot to learn. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. That's amazing. Uh, David, I just want to pick up on one thing because I'm conscious of your time. We're, we're about to finish. But you, you mentioned earlier on the, the, the role of psychedelics in your, in your kind of journey. Mm -hmm. um, and you do like using the word conscious, as we've dis discussed. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, what's the, the role that psychedelics have played maybe potentially in opening you up to, you know, uh, uh, non-normative structures of relationships? Have you really, uh, you know, thought a lot about uh, the role of psychedelics within that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book is is the uh, the last one, you know, where we talk about kind of the seven stages uh, of transformation. And, you know, that last stage is something that's really akin to what I always thought in my kind of late teens, early 20s is spiritual enlightenment. You know, this place that's sort of this lofty possibility for human consciousness. And that just the the resonance with that concept was really born out of some really intense psychedelic experiences in my teens. Like I just kind of had some earth shattering experiences right out of the box. Um, you know, I had sort of an older mentor who was really it was sort of a unique experience. I actually didn't start doing psychedelics recreationally, even though I was so young. I kind of had someone take me under the wing and really be specific about this is not for that. I ended up going through a recreational phase later, but I didn't start with that as a precedent. And so it was interesting to note how that's followed me through my life. And so as we were, I had kind of taken a, a long break from, from significant journeys. And then we opened and I started going through really intense um, attachment rupture reactions, kind of primal panic states. And it was that started to come right back onto the radar. And that was one of the first things that we started to think about is I was really falling apart was how am I going to get support for this? And the first thing I did was go to, and we mentioned this in the books, I went to Peru and started working with some, some groups down there and focusing on different medicines in the, uh, in that context. And so for me, I think it's just, it's one of the fastest and most efficient ways to rewire your, your, 
cognitive pathways. I mean, it's just, you know, the research is there. Um, so for me, it's like when you're wanting to deconstruct identity in your sense of self and expand your sense of what's possible, I think it's a really powerful resource. Is it the only way? No, definitely not. Is it for everybody? Definitely not. But for the people who are inclined and drawn to work with it, yeah, I think it's a great tool. Different people's stories and experiences, there can be this awareness of how connected everybody is to everything, how we are each other, you know, the connections to nature, to one another, you know, the interconnectedness of everything. And I wonder if in non-monogamy, you know, sometimes for myself, if I'm having some moments of jealousy, if I'm having something come up to actually sort of zoom out and realize, you know, I am, this might sound a bit out there, but, you know, sometimes I am my metamor, my metamor is me. They are somebody who is on their own journey. You know, they are somebody who's looking for love. They're looking for connection. You know, I am also that person. You know, it's sort of like the zooming out and realizing that we are actually all in this love ecosystem. So, you know, hearing you speak about that, I that's sort of what I can gauge from that as well. Definitely. I think I, th- I think the caveat for me is I think a lot of people have these issues and a lot of people, I think, use psychedelics as a way to try to come to terms with the hard pieces. And that's what I was definitely trying to do. I was trying to come to terms with the hard pieces of, of relating openly. Um, and like, you know, I had this idea of curing jealousy and getting beyond it. But what was really fascinating to me is is sort of what I learned in those journeys was that's not real the where the real work is the psychedelics aren't going to do that for you they're just going to show you a window of what's possible and then you have to come back and actually figure out okay what are my needs what is a secure attached relationship for me if that's what i'm wanting and how do i get there and then you kind of have a clarity around your journey those aren't going to be the things that sort of fix it quote unquote for you and that's the caveat. Fascinating. We would like to say thank you so much uh, for joining us. There's so much to think about there. And I feel like I, I would happily talk to you guys for the next uh, two years, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, I would encourage everyone uh, to go and check out your work, check out your books. But would you like to give us a little plug, both of you, about where we can find you? So if you'd like to share a little bit, maybe David first, if you'd like to share a little bit about where our listeners uh, can find you. Yeah. So anyone who is struggling with relationship conflict, communication dynamics that feel hard or needing to work through past ruptures in the relationship. Um, that's the kind of work that I specialize in. And you can find me at relation, uh, restorativerelationship.com. So that's restorativerelationship.com. And people can find me at jessicafern.com. And they can find the book really anywhere that you can get books, um, obviously online. But if you have local bookstores, request that they get the books to you there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. We've really enjoyed this conversation and we hope to speak with you again in the future. Perfect. Thank you both. Yeah, thanks so much.